to Flora and Friends, your botanical cup of tea, a podcast for plant lovers of any kind. We welcome guests to our botanical tea break to explore the history, science and meaning of plants for our lives. My name is Judith Lundbeil-Felten. I'm a plant scientist, university researcher and founder of Flora L Design and I'm the hostess of your botanical cup of tea. Welcome to all our listeners. I'm happy that you are back here for the second part of my interview with Mattia Strelic from the International Geraniaceae Group. And in this part of my interview, we're covering more about the consequences of climate change for Pelagonium as well as the consequences of anthropogenic activity. Um, but we also talk a bit about the International Geraniaceae Group, about resources, and Mattia shares in the end a secret tip of where you should go and visit um, in South Africa if you were interested to see lots of different pelagoniums. So with that, I hope you will enjoy this part of uh, the episode and I leave the floor to Mattia. What what happens to the pelagoniums when the climate changes and how does that affect the areas where the pelagoniums are from? I'm actually not so aware. I know that here the summers get drier and hotter and the winters get wetter. What's the effects on South Africa and also up the coast there towards Turkey and how does that impact the plants? Um, that's a really tough question. I, I studied a little bit uh, climate change predictions for Southern Africa and Africa more generally. Um, I don't think that in the tropics we're going, we're going to see huge changes, or it doesn't look like we might, or at least plants will have time to adapt and move. The, the biggest issue, I think, will be in the winter rainfall regions, especially because of the highly, highly, highly adapted plants to particular ecological niches. And if you've got such plants that can only survive in a particular niche, if there is a small change in a rainfall pattern, for example, there is a high likelihood that such plants will go extinct. And there are predictions, for example, for Namaqualand, for rainfall patterns to change. Um, and we are already seeing, I believe, less winter rainfall and, and more year-round rainfall in those regions. If this changes and plants do not have time to adopt, we may see catastrophic loss in biodiversity. Mm. Are there today already species that are threatened from the pelagoniums? Um, yes, there are, but um, I wouldn't necessarily say that the biggest threat today is climate change. Um, there are a couple of species, not so much in the genus uh, Pelargonium, but perhaps in, in more generally in Generaniaceae, that have been overcollected. 
For example, um, Monsonia peniculina in southern Namibia um, exists only in a couple of valleys in southern Namibia, and it has been collected a lot by succulent enthusiasts. Uh, there's probably no less than a few hundred plants left. Um, however, those are really aesthetically extremely beautiful plants. The majority of pelargoniums are either, at least of, of those pelargoniums that are of interest to succulent plant enthusiasts, are either so well distributed and so widely distributed that over collection is not a problem, or they are such obscure species that are that they're only of interest to people like me. So they they don't get over collected at all. <laughs> Luckily, let's say. I think that, um, and, and we've seen that from literature, that the, the major pressure on pelargoniums generally is overgrazing and agriculture, particularly in arid areas, for example, in the Makoland, um, where, I mean, I'm not trying to be judgmental. Of course, people need to survive. and uh, But we've seen that with larger flocks, with larger farms with more animals, there is more pressure on animal on plant populations. And um, we do see that the populations, particularly of the of some of the rarer species, have declined. There are a couple of species that we simply haven't been able to locate in nature again for 30 years. Um, just uh, uh, two years ago, uh, a, a colleague of mine, Florent Grenier, managed to locate a species that was never seen for 30 years, uh, Pelargonium conivens, because it grows in an area that um, is, is very popular, uh, uh, you know, in terms of agriculture. And it is very likely that the populations were, were simply grazed to the ground, grazed away. In the south, particularly in the Western Cape, in areas around Grape, uh, Cape Town, uh, there is a lot of pressure for development, and um, particularly species that are that are native to the lowlands around Cape Town are 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 very threatened. Uh, for example, Pelargonium heterophyllum um, is now known from only two populations, of which one population is already next to a an urban development, so I'm not entirely sure how long that's going to survive. And then there are some species, for example, a species that is still new to science, that are only known from practically suburban areas of Cape Town, and that are unlikely going to survive. Mm -hmm. Are there conservation programs to save these plant species that are threatened? Yes, absolutely. Um, the the uh, Cape Nature, as well as other organizations across the Cape, are very well aware of uh, populations of uh, species that are in decline and that um, are threatened. But um, I specifically mentioned the, the taxon that is new to science and from, from 
basically the, the, the suburbia of Cape Town. And if it's new to science and conservationists don't know about it, it's not possible to protect them. So mm -hmm. I sometimes wonder how much else, how much more there is in nature that we haven't yet discovered, we haven't yet described, and because of that, we don't know how to protect. Mm -hmm. uh, but luckily, with some farmers in Namakwaland, um, colleagues have been in conversation and um, some, some farmers are really aware of the extraordinary flora, of the extraordinary plants that grow on their farms. So, for example, in the Makolen, there, there are farmers who have decided um, to, to, to develop parts of their farms into tourist farms. They are no longer grazed. The, the, the natural flora is taking over and uh, populations of pelargoniums as well are becoming reestablished. So these are real success stories. The Overberg um, uh, Conservation Trust uh, east of Cape Town it specifically engages farmers such that parts of their farms become conservation areas um, so that farmers in cooperation with uh, such trusts establish um, contracts that protect populations of those rare and extremely interesting plants. So there is more and more of this activity, which makes me really positive. Mm -hmm. What is the risk if um, pelagoniums disappear, if certain species disappear? You mentioned that they are, there seems to be a co-evolution with, with flies because of these long nectar tubes. Um, are there other ecological um, purposes for these plants? Do they fill somehow another niche that could be threatened if the pelagoniums or those types of pelagoniums disappear? That's, um, that's a really tough question. Um, so what you're really asking is the value of biodiversity, I think. And this is an enormously difficult question because it's really difficult to ascribe a value to any particular species. But the, it's the biodiversity itself that can be valuable. So some of the research recent research, specifically in Europe, has evaluated that, for example, biodiversity services that contribute to plants having medicinal use or natural pollinators um, putting fruit on our table and similar, some of those services were valued to 1.4 trillion euro in investments held by just Dutch financial institutions. So even financially, the value of biodiversity is so vast that we can't really understand those figures, at least I can't. Um, it's really difficult to put the value on a particular species in a particular niche, but as a whole, the biodiversity provides enormous, enormous services to humankind. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, and of course, it's uh, it's for also for us. It's hard to predict when a species get extinct, how how it grew together with other species. And sometimes, again, I'm myself doing research on on plant microbe interaction. It can also be this type of interaction that for us is pretty much invisible. That it changes the the microbiome of the soil, and then another species is affected by that. Um, whenever a species disappears, that can have consequences that are difficult to imagine. With insects, it's easy to imagine this. There's a flower and there's an insect, but there can be all kind of other interactions with different species that are that are unknown to us yet. So uh, I, I think you're absolutely right, and uh, these complex systems are are not studied enough yet to understand how. This is the disappearance of one element in a system affects over maybe several elements in a chain, another species somewhere else mm. or a process somewhere else. So the disappearance of a single species might not matter much, but it could have a devastating effect of, on something else that we don't understand. Mm. I was intrigued to see earlier said that you uh, were involved during one of your visits into uh, catching flies and studying. How did that happen that you were involved in that research project, given that your own scientific background is not in botany? I'm in contact with um, several botanists who are interested in the genus, as well as, as it happens, in pollination of pelargonium plants. So a couple of years ago, I spent a little bit more time in South Africa. So we went, managed to get together in northern Namaqualand. And we spent uh, a week together uh, observing flies um, pollinating pelargoniums. And that was one of the best weeks of my life, to be quite honest. Um, we basically spent an, in, an entire day catching flies in, in the middle of Namaqualand and observing and measuring them. And then one of the colleagues went back to his laboratory, did DNA analysis, and finally established that we caught a new species of fly. How many times does that happen in one's life? It was just <laughs> absolutely phenomenal. Yeah, I can imagine that this is an amazing, uh, amazing time also to spend like other people go for holidays to the beach and you go and catch flies and learn something and discover something new about our world. That's a great way. I've that's... never been much of a beach person. Maybe that's the reason why I like pelargoniums. <laughs> that could be as well. Even though I think you're pretty close to the coast, you, you can see the sea, can't you, from the when you are looking at of the course, pelargoniums. Of course, of <laughs> course. Um, if one, uh, maybe there are people that are interested in, in traveling and to finding places where they can see the pelargoniums. You have mentioned the um, collection uh, of Stellenbosch University, but if one would go more to like to places out in the wild, are there any particular places where you would say, if you get one place to see, that's the place where you should go? The, the, there are a number of places depending on the types of pelargoniums that you're interested in. But if there is one place where I would take a person who's never been to South Africa, uh, it would be, it would have to be Pakhoi's Pass, which is very close to Clan William. And Clan William is itself maybe two hours and a half, three hours away from Cape Town. So it's really close to Cape Town. 
It's a mountain pass that represents such a diversity of microhabitats that it probably has the, 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 the densest distribution of species, particularly succulent and xerophytic species in one place. So as you move up the pass, you see maybe 15, 20 or 25 species of pelargonium and it's just the most diverse and accessible pelargonium habitat that I go to almost any time I travel to South Africa. And uh, just five years ago, I discovered a new species there. So it, even, even habitats that have been traveled over a number of times sometimes come up with, uh, with new surprises. Mm. That sounds like a wonderful place to, to see when we can travel again. What is the the um, the law and the recommendation and a good practice if people were traveling and they would discover pelagoniums and they would say, "Oh, this one I want to take home." Don't do that. That's the law, mm. um, and you absolutely shouldn't take anything from nature at all. And the um, the laws are extremely prohibitive, and rightfully so. Um, there are European laws that prohibit people from importing plant materials from, from countries uh, because of pests and, and similar, so it just shouldn't be done. And then, of course, there are South African laws that prohibit taking any plant material from nature reserves or any other protected habitats. Um, and even if you look at plants alongside roads, you shouldn't be taking plant material uh, because regional and provincial laws exist that prevent people from doing that. Um, so I would just flat out refuse to take any plant material or suggest to people to do so. Mm -hmm. If I find a new species, then I take photographs or if I think that I found something that's of, that might be of interest, then I take photographs and I discuss those photographs with uh, botanists, mostly local botanists from, from, from the Cape or co colleagues that I, that I know about. And then if there is interest, then permits need to be obtained to collect plant material legally. And then on the basis of such permits, the plant gets described. It is, uh, it is a lengthy process, um, but of course, laws need to be observed. Mm -hmm. So if people start to collect pelagoniums, they have uh, you, for example, with the Geranicacea, International Geranicacea Group. So that's a network where people can get plant material from. But this plant material has also at some point been taken and exported from the natural place. So how has that been done? Um, these laws have not existed uh, for a very long time and uh, importation of plants hasn't been as restricted as it is these days. And in the past, it was quite common for plant enthusiasts to travel and, and, and collect plant material And it wasn't prohibited to travel with such material back to the States or back to Europe. 
And um, there are a lot of such collections still available in European and other collections of enthusiasts where we propagate such material and make sure that it is that it that it is available and that it is um, that it is uh, um, um, that that it is grown basically. Uh, so within the International Geraniaceae Group, we keep a collection of um, of reference plants where a few growers uh, with a little bit more experience in pollination and germination and so on, uh, where we take care that those plants are not hybridized, that they, they are kept genetically pure, if you like, so that the characters remain true to the originally collected plant material. We also make seeds available to our members, and that's a, that's a very popular uh, activity of our plant society. We, we publish an annual uh, seed list which contains 400, 500 seed types, and those are made available to botanical gardens as well as private collectors, and anybody can grow interesting plants for, for practically zero money. Uh, we're not doing this because of uh, any commercial interest, absolutely not. We're a, we're a registered charity in the UK, and it is our main goal to make seeds of geraniaceae as widely as as widely obtainable, as widely distributed as possible, such that we all enjoy these interesting plants, but also such that the pressure on collecting in nature is as low as possible. Mm -hmm. And there you don't have only pelagoniums in that collection that one can get seeds from. That's right. No, we're interested in the entire, uh, in the entire um, family of plants. Um, although I should say that apart from geranium, which is another huge genus in, in, the, in, in the family, we have uh, fairly few representatives or fairly few growers who are interested in plants other than uh, geranium and, and, and pelargonium. Monsonias tend to be a little bit more popular, especially section sarcocolon, because uh, plants from this section have very thick stems, very spiny stems that are of interest to succulent enthusiasts. Um, and then a few growers that, who are interested in the genus Erodium, uh, which tend to be really, really beautiful herbaceous plants from the Mediterranean region. Uh, but the majority of our members are interested in uh, Pelargoniums. Mm -hmm. Very nice. And then you have also, you're keeping a website as well with a catalog of Pelargoniums pedagoniums.si yes did, that's how did that happen <laughs> well um 20 years ago or so when i started studying the genus in in earnest i i discovered that the literature sources on this genus on this genus are so diverse and sometimes difficult to come across that i started making notes to myself and then i started photographing as everyone does, um, these plants as well. And I thought perhaps this might be of useful to others. And I started to systematically 
put all the information that I have on the website and organize according to species and sections. And um, I'm hoping that that's of interest to, to, to other growers. And uh, it's been just a very, very interesting exercise to myself um, to classify, photograph, and make that information available. Mm -hmm. Do you have a favorite geranium? Uh, Pelagonium. <laughs> no, I, you know, I have had this confusion whenever I'm writing or auto-translating anything from Swedish to English. It replaces all the Pelagoniums with geraniums, and I need to go and pick and it's like, correct it. So, do you have? No, I, I know exactly <laughs> what you mean. Yes. <laughs> the confusion is still there, even though we are distinguishing geraniums and Pelagoniums today. Clearly, it hasn't been always like that back in the days. Um, But yeah, do you have a do you have a favorite pelagonium plant? It really depends what flower is in my greenhouse, to be honest. Some pelagoniums I really love because of their amazing shape in whatever time of year. But there are some really miniature species that really surprise us with huge flowers and, and interest flowers that are of, of, of a particularly interesting shape. For example, Pelargonium saxatili is, a, is an absolutely amazing uh, geophytic species. Um, the rosettes are barely bigger than two, three centimeters, but when they flower, they, they, are, they are just absolutely beautiful. That's certainly one of my favorite species. Mm -hmm. I get more and more the feeling that I need to move somewhere where I can have a greenhouse. <laughs> That's, I think, the biggest limitations for collecting and growing pelagoniums that you need to have a place that is cool enough uh, and light in the winter, not too cold. So has, has somebody uh, that you know succeeded with pelagoniums only indoors and outdoors? Or does everybody you know that collects pelagoniums has a greenhouse? No, um, in the society, we have many members who grow species pelargoniums on windowsills and, and, or on balconies. Um, of course, this requires um, a little bit more care because very often pots need to be moved at least twice a year from a, from a cold balcony indoors and vice versa. The real challenge is for growers wishing to grow winter grower, winter growing plants indoors, because that usually also requires artificial lighting. But we have members who do that as well. And because LED lighting is so energy efficient these days, um, some of those indoor grown plants are just absolutely phenomenal, indistinguishable from naturally grown plants. The, um, what our growers do, I, I sometimes just marvel at. They, they are real artists when it comes to growing pelargoniums. Wonderful. That gives me also some hope. There's always hope. <laughs> There's always hope for growing plants, yes. And uh, any um, sources that you would like to share, your website, uh, contact, books, anything that you think could be interesting for the community? There's an awful lot available to Pelargonium enthusiasts when it comes to literature. Um, there are numerous field guides 
published by various South African publishers. And those are the go-to literature on the genus. There are, there is a series of books from the late 80s, published by Professor van der Waalt on Pelargoniums in Southern Africa. Those are now difficult to get by. They are collector's items, the books, but they are still the most important source of botanical information about the genus. Um, then there are websites such as pelargonium.si, for example, and then there is, of course, the website of the International Geraniaceae Group, where we hope to provide a collection of photographs of plants in nature, but where we also publish our own newsletter with information on the plants and uh, where we have numerous other literature available. Some of it is available in digitized form freely to non-members, and uh, most of it is available um, or, um, behind the paywall to our members only, but our membership is, the fee is so low that uh, it's, it's quite affordable, affordable mm -hmm. hopefully. How many members do you have in, the, um, in this group? I was looking at the numbers just today. We have uh, 217 as of the 2nd of April. Okay. It's, um, it's not a large group, I would say, but um, the membership, what's, what's really good to know and what really makes me happy about the group is that the number is steadily increasing. Many plant societies have seen a decrease in plant, in, in plant numbers, in, in, in member numbers, um, because of everything that social media and the internet offers. Um, our numbers have increased in the in the past over the past five years, and and I'm really really pleased about that. It, mm -hmm. it means we're doing something right. Yes, and you are international. Where are people coming from? Is it all around the world? Is it majorly Europe? Um, yeah. The group started as a as an offshoot of the British Pelargonium Society. So initially, the group had mainly UK membership. Um, a few years ago, we established that our membership is already so international that we should start calling it International Geraniaceae Group. The majority of our members still come from Europe, um, but we have increasing member numbers from uh, in China and Taiwan, for example, uh, and elsewhere in East Asia. So, which really makes me very happy because uh, there are large numbers of enthusiasts in East Asia, and I'm just too pleased to be able to offer seeds to them via our seed list. Wonderful. That is, again, another example where plants connect the world. <laughs> They absolutely do. We have monthly Zoom meetings, sorry, quarterly Zoom meetings where where colleagues and, and friends come together with presentations. So we're quite a lively bunch. Mm -hmm. Thank you very much. I think this was a, a, a very pleasant interview. We have covered lots of different aspects about uh, the Pelagoniums and many new aspects as well. We have been kind of going through different episodes, talking more about the hybrids last uh, week about the um, 
the medical uses and more of biotechnology and research. And now we went more into the ecology. So I think that's a, there's so much to discover about the genus itself, like as probably about other plant genuses as well, but uh, that genus is, is rather large and diverse. So, and many different people have a different um, relationship to pelargoniums. I, I think that one of the reasons why pelargoniums are the species are interesting today is is because they have enjoyed so much attention as garden plants as as, as horticultural plants uh, in the past 100 200 years and only rightfully so because they are nature's great survivors mm -hmm. thank you very much matia it's been a pleasure judy thank you very much for having me I hope you have enjoyed this episode and if you haven't listened to our other episodes about pelargoniums yet where we discuss their history, their medical use, biotechnology and how you can easily grow them yourself, then visit our webpage at www.flora-l.com forward slash blog where you can find all Flora and Friends podcast episodes. To keep yourself up to date on new releases of episodes, I invite you to sign up for the Flora L newsletter while you are on our webpage. Thank you for listening and have a nice day.